You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Talking Chop podcast. This is episode 11 of the podcast. As always, I am Carlos Colazzo, along with my good friend, Brad Rowland. Brad, how are you doing today? I'm well, sir. It's nice to be talking to you on this fine Saturday afternoon. We're a day early, and there's a reason for that. Yeah, it's exciting today. We're very excited to do this podcast. It's been on the horizon for a while now, but we are fortunate enough to have with us Grant McCauley, a reporter for 92.9 The Game, and also the host of Around the Big Leagues with Grant McCauley, the podcast you can find on SoundCloud. Grant, how's it going? It's going well, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I know, Grant, we briefly met last summer when I was fortunate enough to intern with uh, Mark Bowman, but before we jump into this, do you really do you want to just talk about what it is you do for, the, uh, for 92.9 The Game, what your job is, what your responsibilities are, and why you're allowed to walk around the Braves baseball park every day for a living? Oh, sure. No problem. Um, basically, I, I cover the Braves for 1990 Game, which is a CBS Atlanta affiliate, and just get to go to the ballpark. It's a nice place to call the office. I uh, do a show on Sundays called Around the Big Leagues, usually from 6 to 8. We are uh, preempted by the Hawks this weekend, though. But the podcast you can find on SoundCloud. You can find it on iTunes. I've been covering baseball for 12 years, eight of that with the Braves in one form or fashion, both with CBS and with the Braves Radio Network. And I've also worked as a uh, minor league play-by-play guy for the Tampa Bay Rays. So, Baseball's really been my thing for quite a while, so it's a lot of fun to be able to go down and you know kind of connect with the team I grew up watching. I think that's the most fun part. Yeah, so how did you grow up watching the Braves? Was just that's the local team you're from the area, or how, how did you pick the Braves when you were a kid? Yeah, born in Atlanta, grew up in Savannah, so right in the heart of Braves country for the entirety of my life. So I've always enjoyed it. Uh, Dale Murphy is my favorite player growing up, so that's how far my roots go back. I know it's kind of tough you know, these last couple of years, but when I grew up on the Braves, we weren't really expecting a whole lot most years. So it, it's kind of a, a strange turn, but hopefully the Braves are trending back in that right direction again. Yeah, so for me, as far as the, most of the years that I've been following the Braves, they've been pretty successful. Obviously, I was born in 1994, and really that's, that's right in the middle of when the Braves were just dominating the NL East. And it's only the past few seasons that I've experienced a Braves team that was maybe this poor, but for you, as far as your job, how how different is it covering a team that's maybe not expecting to be competitive? I know you did that last year with the 2015 team, but how different is that for you, and does it make it more difficult to cover a team that's not as good as we've seen this team in the past, or is it kind of the same old for you? You know, surprisingly, not really, because spending the four years I did in the minor leagues, you know, traveling on the buses and doing all that other stuff, I really got an appreciation for the player development side that goes into this and a lot of what these guys are trying to do when it comes from being a heralded prospect to being an everyday major league player. So seeing that part of the transition really kind of opened my eyes to the full scope of what baseball is really about. And when it comes to what the Braves are doing right now, 
you want to get as much high ceiling talent as you can. I think that's what John Coppolella and John Hart and company have been doing the last two years. So I'm really excited about the future of the team. Obviously, this major league club is missing some pieces. They don't have a cleanup hitter. Top of the order is a question mark a lot of times, and certainly the rotation is not what you want it to be. But these are all things that over the next year, two years, with the talent that's coming, it's going to start to fill in those holes. So as they start spending money again, you know, I feel like this is a team that could get better quicker than, say, a five-year period. But mm. we're going to find out because you got to go out there between the white lines and handle business. And for the Braves, that's kind of been hit or miss the last couple of years. There have been some lean times, if you will. But I, I don't know. I, I really don't find that it makes it more difficult. Uh, rain delays, I don't really like those no matter what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but otherwise, I don't really – yeah, I don't really have any complaints. But eighth inning rain delays, nah, I don't need those. <laughs> That's fantastic. And real quick before we jump into really our main topics today, I just want to get your your quick opinion on the rebuild. Uh, obviously, we've heard from the start that 2017 was kind of their target year to be competitive again. Do you think that they're in line to be competitive next year, or do you think it's going to take maybe an extra year? And what do you think about just the pieces the Braves have acquired and also, just to add on to this multifaceted question, uh, do you think the rebuild was necessary in the first place, or do you think the Braves could have gone another way and tried to remain competitive with the core uh, guys they had before they started dealing off players? I'll answer that last part first, because okay. I do think that a rebuild of some nature was necessary, just based on the fact that if you look at the financial model for the Braves, it wasn't going to be possible to keep a Jason Hayward and a Justin Upton. Beyond that, you start to ask yourself different questions about different players that have been dealt off. I think specifically everybody can look at Andleton Simmons and say, was that one necessary? And I don't know if we have the answer to that yet. And Sean Newcomb, Chris Ellis, those are the guys that are going to be the answer to that question, as opposed to, say, Eric Ibar, who obviously has gotten off to a rocky start with the Braves, but certainly is not going to be hanging around for a long time either. So I, I look at most of the things that have been done and say, I can understand it. The Hector Oliveira trade, now given what's happened over the last couple of weeks, that becomes a misstep for this club, I think, because I would be thoroughly surprised if Hector Oliveira really comes back and makes any kind of impact whatsoever for this club mm -hmm. if he ever puts on this uniform again. So those are the kind of things they probably could have done without. That's kind of the bad. But then I start to look at the Shelby Miller trade and getting the kind of talents they got from Arizona and looking at some of the drafting that they've done over the past year or two, and the way that they've stocked this minor league system, I always think that's necessary. Because the Braves are never going to be a club that's going to go out and spin like the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox. They may be able to go out and get that one big piece, but they're not going to be able to sign two, three guys per winter. So I, th I think that living in the financial reality of what the Braves have, they've done some things to set themselves up for future success. Whether or not 2017 is realistic to be a contender in the East, I've got my questions about that, and I'm sure anybody who's realistic about it certainly does as well. But can they be competitive? Sure. Are they going to be toppling the Mets and the Nationals if the Nats are still in that spot? Because you know, they could lose Steven Strasburg. In two years, they could lose Bryce Harper. So mm -hmm. things could change in a hurry. So long story short, I think they can be more competitive as they go along. But to say that they're going to be a contender moving into that new ballpark, which I think pushed everybody's timeline ahead, I don't know if that's realistic or not. But I think the baseball and the quality thereof – the quality of the players and the product is going to get better and better as the Braves begin to fill in these pieces and answer the questions they have about the club internally as well as what the fans want to see and what the fans are wondering about when it comes to when is this club going to be good again. All right, cool. I think you did an excellent job navigating that rambling question of mine, so I appreciate that. Brad, do you have, any, do questions? <laughs> Brad, do you have any questions for Grant before we jump into uh, some of the news we have? I think 
Grant is just better at, at this than we are. But other than that, no, I think, we're, I think we're good. We could probably get in. I'm sure we'll get into anything and everything in the next uh, few topics. Yeah, I think that's pretty evident at this point. But we're doing. I, our, I really just love here. talking baseball, so I'm I'm appreciative to have an opportunity to do it. And this is certainly the team that um you know all of us have got some degree of connection to or or you know passion about. So seeing this process play out, I think it's a lot of fun to talk about, even if we have to discuss some nights in which you know. The Braves go to the post and aren't quite able to do the things that they need to do. So I'm just appreciative to be here. I enjoy it. <laughs> well, we appreciate having you. Um, but a few quick things before we jump into the uh, the main meal of this podcast. Matt Marksberry was recalled from AA Mississippi recently. Casey Kelly optioned to AAA Gwinnett. That gives uh, the Braves another left-handed reliever out of the pen. He's got 8.2 innings under his belt with Mississippi this season. He's allowed three hits and one in a run. Um, I think he's shown some glimpses where he can be a, a, a successful and a useful uh, left-handed option out of the pen. Um, and we also have Lucas Sims, who is promoted to Gwinnett, which kind of leads to our main topic, which is Aaron Blair and Mike Fultonevich. Uh, one of those two pitchers should be starting for the Braves on Sunday. And Chop Hoopla on Twitter asks Grant, he asks you this specifically, uh, will Fulty or Blair most likely get the start on Sunday? Do you have any sort of insider information uh, that you can that you can lean to us right now, or, or do you have a gut feeling on who's going to be starting tomorrow for the race? My indication is it's going to be Aaron Blair, but I don't think anybody would be surprised if it's Mike Fultonevich. I just think that Mike might be able to benefit from one or two more starts just to get himself you know, arm strength, confidence, all those things, you know, coming off of a major surgery, which I'm not sure people really realize how invasive that deal was, that procedure for Fulton Evich. I mean, talking to him in the spring, you know, he's bounced around. He's, he's just excited to be getting back on a mound. But then you ask him about that surgery and he's like, yeah, doctors told me that if I had not gotten this condition treated and flown, I could have died. And I don't think people really realize that. Mm. And I don't know if Mike really realized that. And it kind of sunk in for him. So, I think he appreciates this kind of second lease on life. And I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but then again, you know, this, this was a big deal for him. So I think Mike could benefit from a little bit more time just to get his feet back under him, so to speak. But I think Aaron Blair has been a finished product going into spring training. I would have looked at that fifth starter spot and said, Aaron Blair, go out there. And if you lose this spot, we'll figure out who's going to fill it. But if not, I think he's major league ready. I talked to some scouts in the spring and talked to some other just folks around baseball that said, if the trade had been, Shelby Miller for Aaron Blair. There were people that were going to do that and, and not even have the other two pieces be involved. And we've heard that, I think, different incarnations for all three of the guys in that trade. But I think Blair is a finished, ready product, ready to come up on the big stage and be challenged at the highest level. He's a heady pitcher. He's a guy that can get ground balls, which I think is super helpful for him. And you know, we'll see what the Braves defense does behind him. But he knows how to pitch. And he's a big, projectable right-hander that I think could be in this rotation for a long time. So that's the guy I'd really like to see. But, of course, with faulty stuff, if he gets that thing figured out, that's a guy I'd love seeing every fifth day as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. We talked about the uh, the trade that brought back Aaron Blair. And really, for the most part, Aaron Blair was kind of that player we talked talked about as kind of that throw-in player. And it's, it's funny, a third man. To, yeah, it's funny to hear you talk about how, how people would have done Aaron Blair for Shelby Miller straight up. And there are a lot of people who believe that Blair will be as good or even maybe even better than Shelby Miller. Uh, and when you factor in service time, I mean, I guess you could make an argument for Blair for Miller straight up, and that's interesting. Did you get a chance to talk to Aaron during spring training? Uh, what is he like as a person? I did. I talked to him a couple of times in spring training, and I actually talked to him um, 
right before Gwinnett opened their season, I did a special on my uh, my podcast on Around the Big Leagues and, and talked to him there. And then I talked to him after his start, uh, his I believe it was his second start of the year. Yeah, because they opened on the road. So he'd thrown six scoreless innings, and then he threw the seven no-hit innings last time out. And just asked him about his overall uh, you know, approach to the season, knowing that he's this close to the big leagues. And he said, look, I know I've got work to do. I want to continue becoming a better pitcher every single day. I think that his slider is a is a pitch that's going to be really helpful for him, especially if he's able to pound the bottom of the strike zone with that fastball that it's about 91 to 93 is where he works. And again, mm-hmm. he generates a lot of ground balls. So I think he's got the skill set to be successful. And I also think he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's very unassuming. He's not a guy that's going to be the, the center of the room. He doesn't have you know maybe the, the overall charisma factor of that Tyrell Jenkins-Malik Smith dynamic that pretty much makes everybody laugh and keeps everybody on their toes. But you know, Aaron Blair, he's got that workman's, you know, ethic. And, and I think that he could have some success at the at the big league level. It's just a question of when they're going to be ready to challenge him. And I'm hoping that's going to come on Sunday. Yeah. So far in AAA, he has uh, 19 innings pitched and three starts with a 1.42 ERA and a 2.46 FIP to back it up with 26 strikeouts and five walks, which those last two numbers are really impressive for me. But for you, Grant, where do you project him in the future? Do you think he's more of a middle of the rotation guy or do you think he can be a maybe number two starter. I or- think the number two starter is possible, but I, I, I hesitate to put a lot of, you know, expectations on guys to say, Oh, well, he's clearly going to be the ace or yeah. he's clearly going to be the number two guy. Because even if you do that kind of stuff in the minors or in college before that, or, or high school, wherever you may come from or internationally, I, I think that you have to come up as a young player, establish yourself at the major league level. And then you find out what kind of player you truly are. Just, I mean, everybody that plays, and I kind of learned this in the minor leagues as a rule of thumb, just talking to some coaches, everyone that's there is the best from wherever they came from, that high school, that country, that neighborhood, you know, that state, whatever it may be, that college. And everybody's, you know, basically trying to work their way up to the highest level. Some of these guys fail. The fail percentage for minor league players is a lot higher than the success rate for them, crazily enough. But for a guy like Blair, I, I really think, you know, as far as where he is, as far as the finished product, He's a guy that could slot into a middle of a rotation. I could see that easily. Mm-hmm. Anything beyond that, I, I think, is more or less on the player. And in some ways, it's kind of icing on the cake because he may not have the most exciting stuff of a Fulton Evich or a Sean Newcomb, but he's a guy that can consistently get you outs. And those are guys that you need. I think he can handle the workload of 200-plus innings. And again, you're going to have to have four or five guys in your rotation that can do that every fifth day get you into the into the seventh, eighth inning so that you're not wearing out that bullpen and using five, six relievers a night. That's just one of the things that's hurting the Braves right now. So perhaps Aaron Blair can step in and you know begin to stabilize the rotation at the very least. Mm-hmm. And then we move to uh, Fulton Evich, who obviously you've, you've spent a little bit more time around. We've seen him in the majors, obviously more than Aaron Blair with his stint last season. But what is really... What's kind of the deciding factor for you with Mike Fulton? Obviously, he's got that heater. He's got the fastball, but I really haven't seen any kind of consistency with his breaking ball in the in the time that I've seen him. Is that kind of the same thing that you see with him, or what do you expect, or what do you think Mike needs to maybe solidify or make more consistent in order to have success at the major league level going forward? Well, the secondary pitches are certainly high on the list, but fastball command is going to be the number one thing, and not just throwing you know ninety-seven miles an hour straight down the middle because. Surprise, major league hitters can all hit the fastball. Like, that's not a question. You're not just going to throw harder when you get into trouble. So then it becomes, you know, trusting that secondary stuff, having an off speed pitch that maybe you're not a fastball changeup guy when you throw that hard, but, you know, developing a split finger is something that Roger McDowell had him working on last year. I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, taking great strides, but I know that it's something that they have worked on. 
and I do like his slow curveball when he throws it. He doesn't mm-hmm. throw it a ton, but I think it's a nice wrinkle to have in there. They scrapped his slider in Houston, and they've brought it back, and then I'm not sure kind of where it stands as far as the evolution of Mike as a pitcher, but he needs a good secondary pitch, obviously a breaking ball that he can trust, not just a chase pitch, but one that he can throw for strikes. If he has that and commands his fastball, he can live more or less as a two-pitch pitcher because of the stuff that he has, and I think that's, for a lot of people, why they look at him and say, well, with that stuff, if he's got two pitches, you could close him, but with that kind of arm, I want to exhaust the option of him being a starting pitcher because he carries that velocity late in the games. He doesn't just throw hard for three innings, and the next thing you know, he's out there throwing 92. He's a guy that's got electric stuff, so if he's healthy, I I really think he can be a big-time weapon, but it's all about, and Mike said this, being a pitcher and not a thrower, and that's what he's been concentrating so hard on the last couple of years. It's just tough that he had to go through that surgery that's kind of derailed the progress that he was making, and not send him back to square one, but certainly set him back a little bit. But from all indications, he's extremely healthy. He's a lot leaner this year, and Mm -hmm. I think that could be a good thing for him as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of what me and Brad have talked about with Mike the whole time, just see if he can make it as a starter before just throwing him into the bullpen. I think that's our philosophy in general in regards to pitchers who who maybe you think might might not work in one role but could have a chance in the other. But Brad, do you have anything that you want to add? Yeah, that's I mean, I kind of agree on all of almost all of that. I think Fulty, as you mentioned as you guys both mentioned, uh, should be given every opportunity to to start and succeed there. I think there's sort of a growing movement uh, as to putting him in the bullpen because of that, you know, that high uh, that high speed fastball and the sort of lack of secondary stuff. But at, at the same time, he's young enough and talented enough where you you have to give him the opportunity and uh, you know almost let him fail. If he fails, he fails, and then you can transition him to be a uh, you know an exciting high leverage reliever. Um, but until then, uh, he's still you know it's it's far enough away where you you got to give him every opportunity to succeed. Um, as for like starting, uh, who who to pick to start on Sunday? I'd almost go with Fulty if he's ready. Um, what we don't know is all the obviously the full medical stuff and what the team thinks about whether he's uh, whether he's ready to go for a major league start. But for me, I think uh, um, Grant mentioned this early early on in our discussion. Um, if you went with Aaron Blair out of spring training, that would have made more sense to me. Um, but now that you didn't, it's almost kind of weird to bring him up in late April before the Super Two deadline and court, and sort of push his service time ahead. Um, Obviously, that's not a concern with every prospect, but Blair's good right. enough where that might be a concern long term. And you know, coming obviously, this is not a, a situation where the Braves were going to want to push hard to try to succeed this season in the standings, which would have probably had them starting Blair. But even then, it's it's sort of unwise to burn him now um, a month a month or month plus before that deadline when you know they could almost bring up anybody for a plug and play start here if Fultis is not ready. So that's sh- that should be a, at least a topic of conversation. I'm not sure how much it plays into their thinking and and they certainly won't be too c- terribly candid about that because they can't be. Um, but you know, Blair's the better option right now. I think we kind of all agree on that. He'd be the more effective major league pitcher today. Um, but that's something to think about for sure. Yeah, Grant, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the Super Two deadlines with Blair. Uh, with Blair, I don't really look at it as something that would stop me. I, I look at that a lot more with position players than with pitchers, just in general. And, and that may just be a, a personal preference. Mm-hmm. But I think that they're at the point now where they're looking at this rotation and saying, okay, you know, Julio Tehran has not really been Julio Tehran as of yet. Obviously, Bud Norris has struggled, and we'll, we'll talk about that some more. Matt Whistler has been good. But then you look at the four and five spots in rotation. Sure, Shasin has been nice in a couple of starts, but... You know, I don't know how long you can really plan on that thing, you know, running the way it did in Washington. Certainly, you know, five scoreless innings and eight strikeouts is not going to be happening every fifth day from Yulish Shasin. That wasn't the pitcher that he was in Colorado either. 
So then you start looking at ways to fix the rotation in hopes that you'll be able to fix your bullpen as a byproduct of that because the starters are not getting deep enough into the game enough times a week. And with the way that Freddie Gonzalez manages his bullpen, I know he catches a lot of heat about it. I have questions about certain moves, certainly. And then you start looking at the pitchers themselves, and when they don't get the job done, it begets more and more change. So I start to think about the rotation as a whole. How do you make it absolutely better? And I think Aaron Blair is the answer to that. And with since we're talking about the third week of April, yeah, the Super 2 deadline is kind of looming, what, five, six weeks from now. But it's a chance to get a five- or six-week head start on trying to stabilize one of the most important parts of your team, and that's what you're getting on the mound to start each, each and every game. And I, I feel like you owe it to yourself as a team to make yourself you know, as good and as competitive as you can because otherwise you're going to end up in what the Braves have seen the first three weeks, which is kind of a mess when it becomes time to manage a bullpen and when it becomes time to you know, figure out who's starting every fifth day and know that you can count on them because there's a lot of question marks about this team. It's a chance to knock one of those off the list, and I think that they owe it to themselves to do that and to do it with something they think could actually be an answer. Not that Fulty can't, but we all know that there are some struggles that have been built into his major league career thus far. I just feel like Aaron Blair is a safer bet, and I think that they'll, financially speaking, have the money to be able to account for this kind of a move going forward since so much money is coming off the books after 2016, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of with you on just the, the in general uh, position players versus pitchers for the Super 2 deadline. And Blair is not the guy, type of guy necessarily where he's looks at like a number one starter down the line where yeah. you would really be worried about that. So I, I don't I, think I, he'll I, end up like David Price, where he was, you know, no. Tampa Bay ended up where they were going to have to pay him, what, $20 million a year in, mm-hmm. in, in his final arbitration year. I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that for sure. I just think, it, it, in retrospect, it looks kind of silly. To not start him, uh, knowing I think we kind of at least the three of us probably agree that he was one of the one of the five best starting pitchers in the system to begin oh, yeah. the season. So you know it's sort of just looks kind of odd um, to go with the, to go with him now versus to start the season. But you're you're absolutely right; he's the best option. So if they're looking for you know find me the best option, that's uh, Blair's the choice for sure. Grant, do you know what the team told Blair they wanted him to continue working on? Were there anything specific in his game they wanted him to maybe refine more in AAA? Not at all. I, I think it was more about getting your work in every fifth day and continuing to just build experience because he spent a portion of the year in AAA last year. I, I think that he could have gotten a look in September if the Diamondbacks had wanted to, but I'm sure that you know service time consideration might have been more of a thing for him last year than this year because I think he just he, he came to camp, they saw what they had, they knew what they had from scouting, they felt they did, and then you go down in Gwinnett and make this kind of a first impression I think that really might have put him over the top in terms of just feeling like, okay, we already felt like this was a strong possibility that this guy could pitch at the major league level. Mm-hmm. Now we really feel like he can pitch at the major league level, and I think that kind of puts him over the over the top about it. But it, there was nothing in particular he needed to go do or change or or improve other than just you know get out there and give your best effort every fifth day, and the numbers are going to come for a guy like that because of the way he executes. So Freddie Gonzalez, when I talked to him, uh, probably – about 10 days before spring training was over, right after they'd sent Blair back over to the minor league side, mm-hmm. said, I told him when he went over there, if somebody you know gets a blister, a hangnail, somebody goes on DL, pulls a hamstring, whatever it is, he's going to be that first guy that comes up. And while that may not have technically been true, they've, they've tried a couple of different things mm-hmm. this year before getting to Blair, it's still pretty early in the year, and Aaron Blair is the guy that's being talked about pretty highly. So I think that speaks a lot to what Aaron Blair has already shown this organization with hopefully a lot more to come beginning on Sunday. 
Yep. All right, Brad, unless you have anything else to add on Aaron Blair or Mike Fultonevich, I think we can move on to a little bit more unfortunate topic, which is Bud Norris. Is that good with you? Uh, absolutely. Aaron Blair's good. That's that's our prevailing thought. We like Aaron Blair. There <laughs> yeah. it is. Bud Norris, not so much this season. He's 1-3 in three and 4 starts, 21.1 uh, innings pitched. He's got a popping 6.75 ERA with a 5.75 FIP to back that up, uh, 17 strikeouts and 9 walks. And yesterday, there was an interesting nugget in uh, Mark's Gamer uh, on MLB.com. Apparently, Curtis Granderson's grand slam against him was the hardest hit homer he's had since StatCast started recording it. It was 108.5 mile per hour hit ball. That was the exit velocity. Um, so that's not good if you're the pitcher. Right, Grant? What, what are we seeing from Bud Norris this season? What is, what's been the reason for him not finding success thus far? Uh, I talked to Bud some in the spring. Just coming off the year he did last year, there, I felt like there had to be some underlying you know, reasons why. Not just, oh, well, he won 15 games and then his time of success just expired. He got incredibly <laughs> sick last year with some kind of viral infection, bronchitis, something like that. And he, he basically said he lost about 20 pounds over the course of the season, which is not ideal for a professional athlete no. in any sport. And his mom had to fly in and basically start over and feed him chicken noodle soup and like nurse him back to health, basically. And I was like, "Are you serious?" He's like, "Yeah, this was this was not a not a good time for him." And he pitched his way out of the Orioles rotation and and out of Baltimore in general. He was just so ineffective last year. Ended up in San Diego's bullpen where his velocity started to come back, but I don't know if he's ever really gotten back to where he was in 2014 health wise. I I think he's there, but in terms of you know execution comfort. And, and those kinds of things, mechanically, maybe there's something. I'm, I'm not sure. But talking to Bud after last night's start, he, he basically just said, look, I'm not going to make excuses. I need to pitch deeper into games. I, I need to execute pitches better. He felt like he had Granderson, I think, on the pitch prior to the Grand Slam. And he went back into the same spot after getting him to, I think, ground one weekly over to the right side. Thought he could get him to roll over on another one. Instead, he missed his spot and Granderson didn't. So, you know, that's part of the game. You know, it, it's you're going to think that you've outsmarted the hitter and the hitter's going to be thinking, well, if he tries that again, I'm going to be ready for it. And, you know, Granderson certainly is uh, quite a an accomplished home run hitter in the, over the course of his career. And even at this age, you know, you make a mistake, he's going to make you pay for it, not once but twice yesterday. Mm -hmm. So for, for Bud Norris, I don't know. It's I don't know if he knows right now either. And I, I think that that's not necessarily scary, but it's something that maybe it sends him you know back to the drawing board and says, all right, let me just get out here and, and throw. Let me get out here and, and trust the the game plan that we come up with, you know, prior in the in the meetings and you know, looking over film and, and figuring things out with hitters. I'm really fascinated personally, and this is just something I'm looking at mm -hmm. to see if Tyler Flowers gets a little bit more time behind the plate. Not that Bud Norris and AJ Pierzynski don't work well together, but I looked at the ERAs by catcher for Julio Tehran. And he and Pierzynski have never really enjoyed much combined success. And yeah. by that, I mean Tehran has never pitched well with him. Flowers had this reputation of being a good game caller, cerebral catcher, good pitch framer, all those things. I don't really worry about the caught stealing rates because nobody steals enough bases in the big leagues for it to really matter, you know, as far as what catcher I want to use. But Tyler Flowers was also Chris Sale's personal catcher. And when the White Sox cut him loose, among the other things that Chris Sale wasn't happy about this spring training was Tyler Flowers not being there anymore. So I think that speaks volumes about what he might be able to bring. Not that he's going to turn guys into Cy Young Award winners, but mm -hmm. maybe that's an X factor that the Braves have yet to tap in on. I don't know. Do you know what it is about Tyler Flowers that all these pitchers like him? Obviously, Chris Sale likes him, but have, have you talked to any pitchers that maybe prefer? Obviously, 
they're probably not going to say that uh, in the clubhouse because you don't want to butt heads with anyone. But you know what he brings, uh, maybe like an intangible that he brings to the game? What is it about Tyler Flowers? He's very cerebral. He studies. He is very much into – I read a piece on Fangraphs last year. I think it was David Larilla that, that wrote it, that talked to Tyler. And, and almost even the way he talks about it, he's like, no, it's not about how you attack hitters. It's about you know A, B, C, and D. And you know he just – the way that he looks at it, is I think a different level or one more layer than a lot of people do. And I think that's something that he's worked upon because I saw Tyler coming up in the Braves organization. He looked like he was going to be a hit first defense, second catcher. I mean, think Evan Gaddis, a lot of power, maybe not quite as much as Gaddis, but (laughs) you didn't really expect him to be this great catcher, but he's worked and worked and worked to make himself that. And I think that speaks to the fact that he's just so, you know, just engrossed in the process and, and, you know, knowing the, the tendencies of hitters and what they can do and and also knowing the tendencies of his pitchers and how they can tap into that and use it as a strength because you know trying to put that plan together and execute against a hitter and a given at bat you know things change from time from from basically from plate appearance to plate appearance and i think that tyler flowers in that process is just extremely good Mm -hmm. but we haven't seen a ton of him yet but that's just been the overwhelming consensus of what i've gotten is that this guy's smart and if you got somebody who's smart I don't know about you, but I like to listen to smart people because then I feel smarter. Yeah, that's why you've been talking the majority of this podcast, Grant. Oh, <laughs> um, but uh, moving back to Bud real quick, you mentioned the weight loss. Do you know if he's put all of that back on? And do you think that uh, even him losing all that weight last season could have lingering effects as far as his preparation in the off season? that maybe he hasn't really caught up physically to where he's used to being? I think he's caught up, really, because, I mean, I would look at the radar gun first and foremost and say, well, if he can't sustain his velocity or if there was something you know, that just seemed like an over overriding you know, problem for him. But, no, he, he looks healthy. I mean, it, skin color's good and all that other stuff. So, And he was hitting the gun at 93-94 last night. But, again, it's not just about velocity. It's about location execution and mm-hmm. you know the, the sequence of pitches that he's going to be throwing. And if he's not really able to feel 100% you know, confident in his ability to execute a certain pitch, maybe that changes the selection that he wants, and then that changes the scope of the entire bat. So there's a lot that can go into it, but I, I think health-wise, strength-wise, that's all back. But maybe, you know, as as any person would, after you've experienced um, an elongated feeling of, of failure, trying to work twice as hard to be twice as good after the fact could be a, a mental challenge that I'm sure for athletes or for any one of us, you know, that you might run into. It's just feeling like you have to be too perfect or too fine, you know, in order to counteract how bad you were the year before, trying to erase that from people's minds. That's just part of the aspect that goes into the everyday rigors of being a professional athlete, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And with you being in the clubhouse every day and talking to these guys after games, um, obviously you've got to ask them questions after when they probably don't want to talk to anybody, but how has Bud responded, excuse me, how has Bud responded after some of these struggles? Well, I like to let Mark Bowman ask all the tough questions. <laughs> I think that that's just the easiest way. No, but <laughs> I, I think Bud's been okay. He's disappointed, I think, is the one thing that comes across. But, you know, Bud Norris is a very confident guy, too. So, you know, that, that becomes, as you look at the, the reaction afterwards or after a game like that, you know, he's kind of searching for answers right now because it's not as easy for him to just be like, well, you know, I went out there, I threw my best, and, and some guys just got me. I, mm-hmm. I think that he's still looking for – you know, the the continuity that he needs to succeed every fifth day. And as he searches for that, I think he's going to have some good starts. I mean, his first start of the year against the Nationals was a good start. 
and he actually deserved better than allowing the three runs. That's kind of as the Braves' defense was, as we found out pretty quickly, not going to be always the most um, dependable group. But I, I think for Bud, facing the Nationals the next time, that's kind of a tough draw because they just saw you four or five days before that. And then the Marlins club is one that I think we're going to find out over the course of the season is going to hit a lot. So I don't want to make excuses for Bud, but at some point he's going to have to figure out whatever that that X factor is to get him through the lineup, you know, three times and into that fourth time so that he's able to go deep into ball games. And he's basically said, that's my goal. I'm not looking at the numbers. I just want to pitch deep into ball games because if I'm doing that, then the team is going to have a better chance to win because I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. Brad, do you have anything to note on Bud? Yeah, I think the, the we talked about a little bit about it earlier about how the bullpen's been taxed. I think Norris is part of that. Um, only throwing twenty one innings and four starts. That's the guy who was brought in to really eat innings. Um, as you're, you know, he's the one established veteran outside of Julio in this rotation right now. And uh, obviously, you, you don't want to leave a guy out there when he can't when he's not being effective. But you were at least expecting him to throw in the neighborhood of two hundred innings if he over a full season because of the fact that. You know, Norris is a guy with a career a career ERA in the mid fours, so it's not like you're expecting right. him to be lights out. But you do you do need those innings from him, and him only averaging, you know, about five and a third innings in, in his first four starts is a, is a little bit troubling. Um, again, the, yeah, he has to be good enough to stay on the mound, um, but that also has uh, you know different long lasting effects on the bullpen when you're a guy you're expecting to go deep in games just can't do it. Yep, can't argue with anything there. Um, but I think we're good on Bud Norris transitioning into another negative that we've seen from the Braves this year is the lack of power. Uh, the Braves are dead last with three home runs in the majors. Compare that to the Rockies at number one with 28, the Orioles with 26, um, Freddie Freeman, Drew Stubbs, and Adonis Garcia are the only players with a homer on this team. They're dead last in isolated power, dead last in slugging percentage, um, and what's this note we got here, Brad? The 79 Astros set a modern-day record low of 49 homers in a full season, and they hit five through their first 16 games. So thanks for throwing that in there. The, the Braves I can could... throw another one at you if you'd like it. Yeah, give me, the, give me the, these the, numbers. If you want to flashback 79 years, that's the last time a Braves team opened the season with three home runs over its first 16 games. That would be the 1937 Boston Braves. Wow. So, it's been a while that a Braves team has had this lack of power, and it's kind of surprising because you thought at least for Freeman you could count on a handful, mm-hmm. and then maybe Adonis Garcia, a stronger Nick Markakis. A.J. Pierzynski wanders into a ball every now and again, but this has been a, a really, really you know, punchless lineup when it came to actually putting the ball over the fence. But strangely enough, on the flip side of that, their work with runners in scoring position this year is extremely odd because they're first in Major League Baseball in that department, but they keep getting to where they're leading or tied after seven innings Mm -hmm. and not being able to put the game away. Yeah, I guess Freeman is the biggest question mark here. We've talked a little bit about Freeman's struggles uh, early this season, and we've kind of chalked it up to, hey, like, I mean, Freeman's obviously a great hitter. He's going to figure it out eventually, but is it starting to get to the point where you worry about Freeman, Grant, with his struggles? Um, I mean, it's not ideal. That's probably the most politically correct way to to put it if Freddie Freeman was listening to this. But, you know, I'm not worried about Freddie Freeman because nobody's going to outwork him. And I don't know if at some point if he were to continue to struggle, if he might not need to just, you know, clear his head, give the occasional day off, if you will, just to kind of hit that reset button and, and allow him to, you know, breathe for a minute. But, you know, I, when I go in in the afternoon, what, around three o'clock and three 30, he's, typically in the cage, you know, hitting off a tee or, or getting some, some soft toss going there. 
and then he's out there, BP. He looks pretty normal, but talking to him um, two games ago afterwards, he was basically saying that his loading his swing is not where he wants it to be. He's not getting his front foot down in time, mm-hmm. which means that he's not able to really get through the zone and attack pitches that he feels like he should be able to do some damage on. There were some swings last night that I really liked. I mean, him getting a hit off a lefty uh, late in the game, I, I think that was a, a really good sign for him, a nice, sharp single to the right side, a good line drive. He's hit a couple of balls well that just haven't quite gotten out of the ballpark. And then there were a couple of swings that he had in his final at bat last night, even though they, he fouled him away against Familia mm-hmm. and eventually got tied up with that 97-mile-an-hour heat that I don't think any of us are going to be putting a bat on. But, you know, it's that's a tough pitcher. Certainly but there were a couple of swings in that at bat that I looked at and thought, I think he might finally be getting there. Pitches that he foul away just off to the left side, for him especially, typically means that for a guy that's a gap-to-gap style hitter, mm-hmm. power-wise, he may be you know nearing that spot. But again, I looked at the Miami series and thought, all right, he's starting to get some hits. Swings are starting to look a little bit better. Maybe he's, he's doing his thing. And then you know the, the handful of games since then haven't really you know bore out those results yet. But it's April, and to be honest, I don't really look at anybody's overall cumulative season stats mm-hmm. and judge them until about Memorial Day. So we'll see how that plays out. But I think that Freeman is going to figure this thing out. He's going to get his hits. The Braves just need him to do it in a hurry because this is an <laughs> offense that needs all of the, the power threats or the run producers that it can possibly get. Yeah, Freeman's clearly the most important piece to this lineup. And I think that given his track record and what we've seen of him, I'm, I'm not really too worried at this point. Uh, I think kind of where you are brad are you are you starting to worry about freeman or are you with me and grant here a little bit um only because i think he might be hurt yeah um if you if you look at if you look at some of his underlying numbers that uh, you know the public's not really looking into like his line drive rate is down his hard hit rate is down his exit velocity is down like stuff that you will see um under the surface if you're really digging for it um i'm glad grant mentioned his a little bit about his mechanics and his load because that might just that might that might explain it simply and that he might not be hurt um, but with the guys with, with as long of a track record of success as Freeman goes through this kind of stretch where it's, the, the power's not there really, like you know, Grant mentioned, there's been a few times where he's gotten good contact and that's good and, and that's good and encouraging. But um, you know, I'm not worried per se because it's still early. You're still talking about you know mid to late April. If we get into mid May and this is still the case, then I'll start being uh, a lot right. more worried. Um, but no, I, I think it's it's worthy of talking about just some of the underlying stuff and maybe um, you know a little bit of that link effect with his wrist or something like that but until until we get some more data worry is probably overstating it yeah grant has there been any more talk about his wrist obviously that was a, a big storyline in the spring just seeing how he was coming along but has he mentioned that at all i know he's a guy that doesn't really want to talk about that stuff but has anyone asked about it or is there any updates for the wrist at this point no and, and i really don't think that the wrist at least right now health wise is something that's causing you know the results that we're seeing or the lack of results you know based on his track record yeah he doesn't seem to be favoring it at all he didn't want that day off that he got i know that and <laughs> he never he does just, though right yeah, he <laughs> no like he doesn't <laughs> i mean he wants that 162 he wants every inning of the 162 and i, I think that it was kind of unfortunate last year when he did get hurt and then all of a sudden it changed from, yeah, you know, durable first baseman Freddie Freeman to, oh, the guy can't stay healthy. It's it's crazy how the narrative kind of spins very quickly because he spent those couple of stints on the DL. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. He needs to be healthy in order to produce, especially when you're talking about a wrist. And that's been an area where he's gotten numerous, numerous injections in terms of cortisone shots and things of that nature. I don't know that, you know, there might not be some kind of 
you know, underlying effect of, of getting those kinds of, of things over and over and over and over again. But I, I think health wise, he is fine. But if there is something wrong in his swing in terms of, you know, just loading his swing for, for one thing, and that's a big thing. And that's something that could explain the line drive rates, the hard hit rates and the things that aren't where they need to be. But again, he's a guy that's out there working so hard. It leads me to believe that if you're hurt, at some point, you have to give yourself a little bit more of a breather, and he's not really giving himself a breather right now. So I'm not sure that you know being hurt is something that's factoring into what Freddie Freeman is going through right now. I think it's just kind of searching for those you know, mechanical adjustments he and Kevin Seitzer and, and trying to get the swing right mm-hmm. and trying to get himself back to being the Freddie Freeman that we've all come to expect the past, what, four or five years. Yeah. Grant, for you, is it concerning at all that uh, Freeman seems so reluctant to ever take any time off. Maybe do you, do you think that he can push himself too far when he really does need that rest? I know last season there was he went down with an injury and really tried to go right back out there and ended up having to go on a little DL stint. But is that a concern to you, or do you like that kind of mentality? For I like the mentality. Yeah, I, I like the mentality, but sometimes you, you know you have to protect people from themselves, you know, mm-hmm. because they do want to do the thing that they're you know paid to do number one or well maybe that's number two for him but the thing that you love doing mm-hmm. and the thing that you've always done at a high level so getting athletes in any sport to rein it back in a weight i mean especially for when you start talking about injuries like a hamstring it's like you just have to wait and the waiting is the worst part for these guys you know not being able to do the things that they want to do and for freeman with a wrist not being able to pick up a bat not being allowed to swing a bat <laughs> not being able to hit off live pitching not i mean he can't even go in a cage and hit off a pitching machine like that's just not an option when it comes to what he was going through with that wrist. So the fact that they haven't had to shut him down, the fact that he has not had to you know go back in and and have his wrist looked at again and and get another injection, I haven't noticed him. At least for me, I don't know if you guys have, but I haven't noticed him grimacing or, or favoring the wrist or taking mm-hmm. any swings that make you wonder about what's going on there. And that usually is a telltale sign, as we've seen the last few times that he's really gotten bitten by it. You can tell. You're just not going to be able to hide that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I, I I think that he's probably fine physically, as far as I know. I'm not in his head. But from what I can tell, this all seems to be more of a mechanical adjustment right now that Freddie Freeman's searching for and trying to make. All right. We'll continue to keep an eye on that and see how Freeman is able to uh, adjust as the season continues. But um, a bit more of an optimistic sign from Nick Markakis, at least with his early results this season. He's hitting... 281, 397, 439. Still doesn't have a home run, uh, but he's got a handful of doubles to his name, and his isolated power is up to 158. Obviously, small sample size, but that's the highest that he's had since 2012. Um, obviously, he got a full offseason to work after having that neck surgery a year ago. But have you noticed? Obviously, there's there's a noticeable difference in the pop so far, Grant. But do you think that he can turn into a 15 to 20 home run guy, or do you think those days are, are behind him? I think the days of 20 home runs are probably behind Nick Markakis. It's pretty fair to look at the results, not mm-hmm. just last year, but but also the early portion of this year. Mm-hmm. Looking at him physically this year from a year ago, he looks healthier. He looks fuller. He looks like he had his entire offseason to you know hit the weights, do the things that he needed to do, stuff that you can't when you're following surgery. It seemed like last year for Nick, his whole season was basically one just – you know, a big show and go for a guy that's played in the big leagues for eight or nine years. It's mm-hmm. well, you know what to do. So just pick up the bat, throw in your uniform, get out there and do it. Not the everyday, you know, rigors and and grueling, you know, practice and and extra hitting and the, the weight room and all that other stuff. So I, I think for that, you know, Nick Markakis is probably 
I mean, he's definitely better off. But as far as like probable expectations or, or the expectations you have for home runs, mm-hmm. I would say 10 to 12 is still more realistic based on his last four or five years with the Orioles. Um, interestingly enough, last year he had the same number of extra base hits that he had in his final year with the Orioles prior to the next surgery. It's just more doubles and less homers. But 10 or 12 home runs from Nick Markakis in this lineup would go a long way. Mm-hmm. Where he hits in this lineup for me is what could go an even further way when you're searching for ways to score runs for the Braves. I mean, to me, he's got to be hitting in a top spot in the lineup, but either one or two. And if he's not, then I, I think that you're looking at trouble at the top of the order setting the table because Malik Smith thus far has seemed a bit overmatched at the major league level. Mm-hmm. Putting him at the top of the lineup, not really an answer for you. Enciarte is on the DL, and the number two spot in the order has been a little bit questionable. I'm, I'm happy that Daniel Castro has picked up some base hits, and I know he can handle the bat, but I don't know that he belongs there, and I certainly don't think that Eric Ibar, given the current situation, belongs in that spot of the order. And that's what's setting the table for Freddie Freeman, who, by the way, as we discussed, is also struggling. So you start to see what's symptomatic of, of what the Braves are going through is they just don't have enough hitters doing enough things at the same time to be able to make a sustainable run-scoring attack. Mm-hmm. Brad and I have talked about this a little bit. Obviously, Marquegas isn't your prototypical leadoff man, but if you're the guy penciling in the lineup every day, where are you putting Marquegas in your lineup? I mean, if you're not, not going to get in I talked to Zach Dillard over at Fox Sports South about this quite a bit. I know we all like Zach quite a bit, and I'm not stealing his idea, but I'm going to co-sign on his idea. <laughs> if you're a Freddie Gonzalez at this point, I don't know what you have to lose, you know, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but maybe your job. By trying some different things with your lineup that might be a little bit more new age and throw the old school, you know, effect or old school thinking out the window a bit. If Freddie Freeman's hitting, maybe you think about hitting him second. If you do, then I hit Nick Markakis first. Mm-hmm. Then you've got to figure out what happens, you know, three through eight, because those are still there's questions all over the place. But I want to see Nick Markakis and Freddie Freeman both getting the most at-bats they can possibly get in a game. So mm-hmm. for me, Markakis, he's not a base clogger, but he's certainly not a you know a speedy guy. When you get Enciarte back, I put Enciarte at the top of the order, bat Markakis second, and hit Freddie Freeman third. Yes, that's three lefties in a row, but they also happen to be probably your three most productive hitters in that lineup. That could be a problem late in games, but if you score enough early in games, maybe you won't have to worry about late <laughs> in games as much. At some point, you're going to have to stop, you know, moving one thing across the board to fix the other thing. You're just going to have to go with something and see if it works when you're missing pieces the way this Braves lineup is. So maybe you throw the matchups out the window a little bit, and that might be heresy to some people, and you just go with your best guys and see if your best guys can get the job done. So Brad is our resident lineup guru, so I'm curious as to your thoughts with this idea, Brad. I love Um, it. Yeah, I'm I'm on board fully. I I I'm just so done with um, Daniel Castro and Eric Ibar hitting in the most lineup, most important lineup position every game. Um, so anything anything is better than uh, Freddie using his plucky middle infielder as the number two hitter. So yes, sure, <laughs> on board with it. Yeah, no, Mar- Markakis should be definitely in either the one or two spot, and Freeman. The two of them should be hitting in the, in the top three spots every day, and then uh, hopefully you avoid. Um, Having your worst hitter hitting second or lead off. Um, that's really, it's, it's, it's uh, a baby steps for me at this point. I, I will, uh, I'll be shocked if Freddie ever uses Freeman in the number two spot. I just don't think he's got it in him, to be honest. Um, as much as we all would like to see that, I, I just don't think he's got that in him. But at least uh, if you leave Freeman in the three spot, at least give me Marcakis in the one or two and then not your worst hitter in the other <laughs> spot and we'll be good to go. 
Yeah, I think it comes back to just talking about how you don't really have many options. We've talked about everyone struggling. There's there's not really a great lineup you can make regardless of what what order you put these guys in. So It is fair. Like that is fair. I mean, for yeah. as much as we kill the lineup and I'm the worst culprit of it every day <laughs> when they post the lineup to just kind of laugh to yeah. myself, but in Freddie's minor defense, like there is not a good lineup on this room. I don't know what else right you can do. That's yeah. why right. I look at not. it and think, well, yeah, that's probably not ideal. But <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, right. I had this all planned out in the offseason as far as you know, my fantasy booking was you sign Ben Zobrist and you trade for Todd Frazier, and this whole lineup's <laughs> fixed. But unfortunately, I'm not the GM. I'm not in charge of the money. Those moves didn't happen, and this lineup is missing a cleanup hitter, I think, and probably a, either a leadoff or, or number two hitter, or if you move Freeman up, a number three hitter, and that's well, a pretty tough way to, to go through and score runs. Even even with it, before you had Oliveira, who we haven't talked about a ton on this podcast, like at least today, if Oliveira was on the team, you'd have a pretty obvious one, two, three in my mind with Marcakis, Oliveira, Freeman, and that looks great to me. Obviously, you don't have a ton of speed at the top, which you don't love, but Oliveira with Oliveira being out of the mix, that really hurts Freddie's uh, ability to sort of put a lineup that anybody's going to like on the field. And obviously, we know the reason why Oliveira's not there and he shouldn't be there. Uh, but at the same time, like that does hamstring Freddie. So for as much as I kill him, there are only so many options. I just think there are better options, I think, than hitting Daniel Castro second. Um, but I, there aren't a ton of good options. Let me just say that. Well, I mean, you look at what Adonis Garcia has done thus far with the bat. And he's been pretty much their most consistent hitter. I mean, there's some obvious flaws to his game. He's not going to walk a ton, though he has walked a little bit more this year, surprisingly. But he picks up some base hits. Maybe he hits second. And then at that point, you figure out what the cleanup spot's going to be. At some point, based on the way the Braves are constructed as a roster, you're going to run into the possibility of there being three straight left-hand hitters on a given day. Mm -hmm. Probably more days than not. And that, I think, is then you start wondering, well, and, you know, some people love it, some people hate it. Do you look at playing Jeff Francoeur more in left field <laughs> in particular matchups and on particular days? Jeff Francoeur, for, for the, you know, flaws in his game, last year for the Phillies was a pretty productive player. And the Braves right now are looking for pretty productive players in order to figure a way to put together a, a starting eight. Yeah, I think it goes out there and trying to score runs. So I think you got to throw it at the wall and at least start seeing what sticks and trying some different things. I think as currently constructed, I mean, Frenkor is a better hitter against lefties than Malik Smith is. So if you're if you want to if you want to win games today, then sure. I mean, it's one of those things where I've kind of said over and over again about Malik's that you want him playing every day, no matter where he is, whether that's in Atlanta or in Gwinnett, you want him playing every, I agree. every day. So that's sort of the concern is that you don't want to just take you don't you don't want to have Malik's platooning in the major leagues right now. That mm-hmm. doesn't it's not good for his development. Um, but in terms of putting your best lineup on the field, I'm not sure he, he's in it against left-handed pitching. So it's one of those things where uh, Freddie's kind of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. So it's it's really a tough spot for him. I, I almost feel bad for the lack of options, um, but at the same time, <laughs> there is a better way than what he's done. So it's it's that uh, well, that middle ground. And if I can throw this out there, too, I don't know how long you can go with Adonis Garcia as your third baseman, because even Freddie said about three days ago, look, his position is hitter. He's playing third base because, you know, we're required to play a third baseman, basically. (laughs) He would be better served in the outfield. So at this point, you start to wonder, well, Gordon Beckham getting hurt probably didn't help for depth on the infield. But Jace Peterson's kind of sitting around, can play some third base. Kelly Johnson can play some third base. Maybe you play one of those guys I mentioned at third, defensively speaking, and have 
Garcia out in left field. Now, when Enciarte comes back, that's going to be something in the outfield that's a stabilizing factor. Obviously, Marquecas can field his position. It may not be the most exciting thing in the world anymore, but he's a competent right fielder. you got a great center fielder, an adequate or even below average left fielder is something I think you can live with. But at third base, I think that Garcia's woes over there have probably affected Eric Ibar a bit. And I talked to a couple different people and former infielders that said this. You're thinking about that. You're changing the way that you're setting up, where you're playing, what you're thinking about, everything that you're going through in between every pitch. Mm-hmm. If you know that def- defensively, you have to be able to do some different things because the guy to your right or left is limited somewhere. And everybody knows that Garcia is not a, an everyday big league third baseman, defensively speaking. So mm-hmm. maybe that's another mitigating factor you can get rid of. At some point, though, again, you're going to run into the fact that this this offense – and this roster, this 25-man roster, is not really complete with everything you need to succeed on, an, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know um, Mark Bowman had another one of his stories. Uh, entering Friday night, Adonis boasted the worst career fielding percentage of any third baseman oh, yeah. since 1910. So that is not ideal. Since gloves were made uh, an everyday thing. Since they started putting on, on gloves in baseball. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Not ideal. Obviously, fielding percentage doesn't tell us everything, but regardless of what you think of that, that, that is not good. Um, he has been a solid hitter, but yeah, I, I don't know how much longer the third base experiment there can continue or will continue. It'll be interesting to see. I think it would be cool to see uh, what he would be able to do in left field. Obviously, it'd just be better to move him off the position. Um, but real quick, Grant, what, are, what is your opinion on the designated hitter and possibly having that come to the National League. Obviously, we've heard about that. Uh-oh. But with Freddie's quote, that obviously just makes me think of that. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, that's something that's going to come up every year. I don't see it happening anytime soon. But you know the Players Union's all about it. Mm-hmm. Because that's 15 more everyday jobs. That's 15 more guys who get paid everyday salaries, you know, theoretically. Mm-hmm. And it, it just ex- it extends careers for players. So that's something I think the union will be about. But you talk to some players. I mean, they don't love it. They don't, you know aren't clamoring for it to happen, but we all know nobody's paying their money to come watch the pitchers hit. But the strategy <laughs> of the game being what it is, traditionally speaking, mm-hmm. it, for me, it, like I would kind of hate to see that completely go away. I mean, it's kind of gone away in the American League because they don't have to deal with as many double switches and other you know caveats that might come with making those changes uh, on a given night. But I don't know that it's something that negatively affects the game to the point where you don't consider doing it. And with things being what they are in terms of, you know, just where the game is and looking to find ways to put offense into it because offense actually does excite fans, Mm -hmm. they're going to explore it. I just don't see it happening in the next five or ten years. Well, maybe ten years is a a long time, but I don't see it happening with any sense of immediacy. Okay, interesting. Brad? Yeah, I'm sort of, um, my position is that it needs to be the same in both leagues, and I don't care which one. They're um, never going to get rid of it. So I know, that's the thing. So I'm almost resigned to having it in both leagues. I, I would prefer that to the current system. Mm-hmm. I, I almost, I don't like the DH in general, but as, as Grant mentioned, they're not going to get rid of it. And I just want, I want it to be the same across the board. It seems so silly in 2016 to have different rules in the two leagues. Um, so yeah, just give me the, give me the DH or, uh, do it quickly. But yeah, I kind of agree. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, at least from anything that we've seen so far. Yeah. All right. Uh, real quick before we wrap up Grant, um, we got a question from extra Chris P underscore on Twitter. Who wins in a hundred meter dash? AJ Pierzynski, Jason Greeley, or Malik's in quicksand? 
probably Malik's and Quickstream. <laughs> no, it's it's unfair to the other two guys. Uh, maybe Pierzynski has the outside chance because theoretically, and this is just the way it is, in Quicksand, you're just going straight down. You're not moving. So, you know, maybe if you put Malik's in concrete shoes, he's got a chance. But, mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Grilly's going to be doing too many uh, 50 or 100-meter dashes. I mean, the guy's worked his butt off, but I don't think he's going to be winning a foot race anytime soon. So maybe this is the win that Pierzynski's been looking for as far as uh, establishing some credibility as a real burner. Yeah, there we go. We've got a slightly more serious one from M Dubs 8 uh, does the September lineup include Albies and Swanson? Also, is there a trade on the horizon for a right-handed outfield bat? You can take either one of those if you want. Um, quickly, as far as trades goes, expect the unexpected. Things yep. can happen very quickly in this organization, so I'll never rule that out. You're just going to have to find a team that makes sense in that regard, and I don't know that there's one right now that's looking to do any selling. So maybe, but probably not toward until the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. As far as the September lineup, I wouldn't be surprised to see either one of them both in the big leagues. Albies, to me, or Albies, depending on who you want to trust for your pronunciation, mm-hmm. can, at least from from my money, be counted on, I think, a little bit more to definitely make it up. But Swanson is, is really raked at, down in Carolina. And John Coppola basically said, these guys are going to tell us when they're ready. That doesn't mean that September is something that you know you're establishing them as a everyday player just yet. But mm-hmm. I think we could see both of them by September. I think that if the Braves had a little bit more continuity with other spots in their in, in the lineup and other spots on the field and had six or seven guys that they really knew were established big leaguers that could do their thing, mm-hmm. there's an outside chance that, that Albies got the chance to do what Fercal did. But with this team right now, where they are, service time, all the other things that go into it, there was no reason to rush them. Yep. All right. Uh, one quick question before we wrap this up. If you had to choose one of them to play short and one to play second, assuming – they're both going to play in the, in the same infield one day. Which guy are you plugging in at shortstop? Probably Albies right now. And and I say that because Swanson played a lot of second at Vanderbilt. But Swanson's mm-hmm. a very good shortstop. If it ends up being the other way around, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Yeah. But probably Albies right now at short and Swanson mm-hmm. at second. But, again, I, I don't really feel like you're losing or winning anyway. I think they're both capable. I like them both, and I'll take them both. And if it <laughs> takes that to get them both, both yeah. in the lineup – Let's do it. It's a good problem to have, certainly. Brad, do you have any other questions or any final notes before we wrap this thing up? No, I think we're good. It's been a good time. We've uh, spent a lot of time with Grant, and we're grateful to Grant for uh, giving us this much time, for sure. Yeah, we are so happy to do it. Certainly happy to have you, Grant. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Grant McCauley, M-C-A-U-L-E-Y for the last name. Also, be sure to check out the Around the Big League show with Grant McCauley. We'll link his SoundCloud page. Uh, in the podcast and in the post when this goes up. As always, Grant, thanks for coming on. I guess not as always, for the first time. Thank you for coming on, but uh, hopefully we can do it again in the future. Yeah, I look forward to it. You guys just let me know. Yep, sounds good. You can follow Brad at BT Roland. Follow the site at Talking Chop. You can follow me at Carlos A. Colazzo. Other than that, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, have a good one. Bye.